The impeachment trial of Trump. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's February 9th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Brian, we know that we have a very dedicated and expanding group of people who listen to the show every day that it comes out. We also know that our listeners who are patrons are actually a small fraction of that group. To bring you high-quality content multiple days each week consistently requires support, especially being independently hosted. We don't have corporate support or institutional support, only the support of our listeners. And for our listeners who are already patrons, we want to say yet again eternally thank you. Thank you very much. We depend on you, just like we know you depend on this show. For those of you who are listeners and are not yet patrons, now is the time to take that step. There are different tiers for patrons and anyone who subscribes for $5 or more a month is eligible to join our monthly seminars where we talk about anything and everything with Brian. Just to put it in perspective, that's just 16.666667 cents a day. But even, let's round up, let's round up, 17 cents a day. For 17 cents a day at patreon.com slash the socialist program, you can support this independent progressive media content that gets you through the week each week. Brian, we're going to start today on impeachment. The trial is starting today. And you've talked a lot in the past weeks about impeachment. You've said uh, it's a tactical blunder on the part of the Democrats. What's your view now? Yes, I, I think it is a tactical blunder. I think ultimately... Trump won't be convicted by the U.S. Senate. There needs to be a two-thirds vote. The Republicans, 17 of them, would have to come over and vote for conviction. So at the end of the day, Donald Trump will say, I've been acquitted again, the second impeachment. This is a political hit job. It's unconstitutional. I'm a private citizen. I can't be impeached. Again, at the end of the day, the Democrats will have the opportunity to reveal evidence, which they'll undoubtedly do in the coming days. But bottom line, Donald Trump will say, I won. And, and again, for his base, this creates and, and maintains this kind of aura of invincibility, which has been very much a part of uh, Donald Trump's selling points. I want to put the, the Senate trial for Trump into some historical context, too, because again, as I mentioned, this is the second impeachment trial. This time, Trump is being impeached for inciting an insurrection. And in fact, he clearly did incite an insurrection, and he and his aides undoubtedly helped organize the dispersal of Congress. The, they organized that demonstration on January 6th at 12 noon in front of the White House, 17 blocks west of the Capitol. They, and Trump in particular, told them to march to the Capitol. He told them to fight like hell. And, and of course, many of his aides were making the suggestion that the certification of the vote, should it go through, would be an act of treason. So they were telling the crowd 
you know, you have to go there to save democracy. And there were the the fascists, there were the the Oath Keepers, there were the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, not simply the people who were along for the ride, but real fighters. And they had come organized as paramilitary units. And then you had other elements of what amounts to a conspiracy because parts of the military were basically telling police forces and National Guard forces to stand down. Pleas for reinforcements were not heard. They were not acted on. This was before and even during the breach of the Capitol when it was being overrun, when the place had already descended into into death and, and chaos and bedlam. Even then, elements in the military appointed by Donald Trump were saying no to the urgent pleas for, for help. So yes, Trump incited and helped organize an insurrection. But My argument has been from the beginning that what the Congress should have done, what the Democrats could have done if they wanted to, was to demand that Donald Trump be criminally prosecuted for seditious conspiracy. Impeachment, the maximum penalty for impeachment is you have to leave office. It's a way for the Senate or for the Congress to fire the president of the United States But Trump was already fired when he lost the election or when the Electoral College certified the election on December 14th or on January 6th when the Democrats and the Republicans finally certified the election outcome after they were able to reconvene on the evening of January 6th. It made it clear that Donald Trump was going to be leaving office. So impeachment is designed to fire the president, not to criminally prosecute him. And the argument goes, and it's said over and over and over again, look, this is the most Congress can do. One, a president enjoys immunity. He can't or she can't be prosecuted, that they have immunity from prosecution, and that impeachment, while it doesn't have criminal penalties attached to it, is a way for the Congress to register its disapproval. Well, yes, that is true. But where in the Constitution does it state that a president cannot be prosecuted? Where is the immunity in the Constitution? The Constitution has multiple references to impeachment. I mean, you can find them over and over and over again. The Constitution has Article 1, Section 2, Clause 5, grants the sole power of impeachment to the House of Representatives. Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6, assigns the Senate's sole responsibility to try impeachments. Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7, provides that the sanctions for an impeached and convicted individual are limited to removal from office and potentially a bar from holding future office. But an impeachment proceeding does not preclude criminal liability. There's nowhere in the U.S. Constitution that makes the argument, no reference at all, nor has it been upheld by any court, including the Supreme Court, that the president of the United States is in fact above the law. In fact, when you think about the difference that we're taught in school between a Republican form of government or a Democratic form of government and a monarchical government is that we don't have a king's court, that all people, including the highest uh, amongst us, so to speak, uh, are subject to the same laws. The The place where in American so-called jurisprudence, the idea that the president is above the law comes about in American history is not 
in the Constitution. It's not in 1787. It's not in other amendments of the Constitution. It's not a law. It's a policy that was adopted by the Justice Department under John Mitchell. That's right, Richard Nixon's attorney general, when in 1973, when it was clear that Richard Nixon had committed many crimes and that he could be convicted of those crimes and that he could be prosecuted. So John Mitchell and the Department of Justice under Nixon, as he was being impeached, as he was being investigated for impeachment, and he ultimately resigns in August 1974, but the Justice Department issues this policy, again, not a law, that says presidents of the United States cannot be criminally prosecuted. That was a self-interested ruling by the Nixon administration when it appeared that he might be convicted. Kenneth Starr, who was appointed independent counsel to investigate Bill Clinton first for Whitewater, that's the real estate deals, and finally, uh, the impeachment of Bill Clinton for lying about having sex with Monica Lewinsky in the Oval Office. Kenneth Starr at the time said he did not recognize the 1973 Justice Department memo as being a, a guiding document that would bar Bill Clinton from having been criminally prosecuted. He chose the impeachment route, but he didn't rule out criminal prosecution. Here we have Donald Trump, who has clearly done something very unprecedented, organized a violent mob and helped support that mob and promised them for a month and a half that it would be a wild day, organized a mob to go to Congress, disperse Congress, stop legal certification of an election outcome, and that is a seditious conspiracy. He should be criminally prosecuted. And the fact that none of these people are criminally prosecuted, I'm talking about you know, the big people, the people who really made the thing happen, who raised millions of dollars to make sure the January 6th rally happened and transportation was arranged. None of those people, including the connections between Trump and the DOJ, none of them are being prosecuted by the FBI. And when you think about it, Esther, Nicole, Walter, I mean, we can remember back on January 2017, the Metropolitan Police Department Working with, by the way, not only Project Veritas, but the Oath Keepers, that's right, the same group, infiltrating protest groups that were protesting against Trump. They were sharing information with the MPD. They were providing edited videos to help convict people who were kettled, who were mass arrested and facing decades in prison, decades for conspiracy and conspiracy to riot, not because they broke in or destroyed property. They were marching in proximity to some individuals who broke some windows or did some other vandalism. The government threw the book at them, more than 200 of them, far more than who have been charged for January 6th. And they were facing literally 20, 30 years in prison. And again, you had the Metropolitan Police Department, the FBI, other parts of law enforcement nationally, working with these same right-wing forces who stormed the Capitol on January 6th to try to send those people to prison for almost their entire lives. Anyway, people say, well, what else can the Congress do? What else can the Democrats do? They can do a lot. Anyway, that's my rant. Brian, I think we have, you know, just to back up everything you were saying, I, I want to play a couple of clips that I think really, really show and really reflect exactly what you were saying. Do you want to start with Chris Wallace or <laughs> Donald Trump inciting an insurrection? 
Let's go with Chris Wallace because Donald Trump relied on the Proud Boys. This was not a secret. The Proud Boys are white supremacist fascists. You know, maybe they don't call themselves the Nazis or the Klan. They're the same thing. They are the same thing. And and Donald Trump was asked to repudiate them at that demo, at that debate with Joe Biden. Let's listen to what he actually said. Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups sure. and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland. Sure, Are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, do it? Well, I, go would ahead, say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what, what, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. Go ahead. And Who would right you like me to white proud supremacists and right proud boys. boys. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. Stand back and stand by. He was telling them Proud Boys on national te- television, becoming their recruiting agent. Uh, get ready to f these people up. Get ready to be in the streets. Stand back and stand by. The uh, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, they all knew what that meant. That was a call to arms. I mean, that was a call to be ready to go into the streets. And by the way, on December 10th, uh, the Proud Boys came and beat the hell out of people here in Washington, D.C. They were attacking uh, black people who happened to be close to them. They were attacking progressive people. They were beating them. And the same MPD that worked with uh, right-wingers like Project Veritas uh, and Oath Keepers in, the, in 2017 to arrest progressives, they were arresting the victims of the Proud Boys attack. Now, this is the MPD that's under the jurisdiction of a Democratic mayor, Muriel Bowser. Uh, anyway, uh, when, you th- when you look at the whole thing, to me, Esther, the impeachment, while it's a big deal, it's going to end up as a, you know, viewed by Trump uh, supporters as just you know, theater designed to prosecute and persecute Trump, where if he was actually criminally prosecuted, which, as I said, there's no immunity for the president. It's never been established. That would be a big deal for Donald Trump and his children and his associates like Rudy Giuliani and Roger Stone and all of them who have been promoting the Proud Boys. Right. And I think, as you mentioned, the not only is prosecution not a ruled out in this case, but the fact that presidents have not been, have been allowed to have this certain type of immunity, uh, it, it makes the impeachment process, it, it's really belittled the, the, the impeachment process because they can't be prosecuted while they're in office. And then in this case, uh, Republicans want to make the argument that uh, he can't really technically be impeached afterward after he's out of office. So, you know, it's, it's, it's as if we have a, uh, like you said, a Royal King or someone who is above the law. But I wanted to mention, because you talked about the proud boys, uh, the fact that, uh, Trump has created this whole aura of impunity for these right wing, uh, violent, um, actors. Now, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, the, the teenager who shot and killed two um, Black Lives Matter protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, has been out on bail, and he's been, um, you know, pictured at bars, flashing white power signs, uh, and uh, they, you know, he had a 
T-shirt on that said, you know, free as AF. And, you know, he's being lauded and hundreds of thousands of dollars were raised on his behalf. And he's out and it's creating this aura of invincibility, not just for Trump, but so many of the uh, right wing, you know, violent people who came like a Kyle Rittenhouse and people who came into the Capitol that day who are who are out now. One woman went to Mexico on vacation. Yeah, I saw that. The judge said she she had already had a prepaid ticket, so he let her go on vacation to Mexico. I mean, it's I mean, this is there and and Walter, I I asked you like let's just compare who the the people who have been arrested for violently attacking Congress. Uh, one Capitol police officer killed on the uh, you know died from his injuries. Another committed suicide. Uh, other people died. A, a major event, like unprecedented event. And I'm, I'm going back to January 20th, where hundreds of people were arrested and charged with heavy felonies, not because they did anything. They were kettled because they were in proximity to some individuals who broke some windows. Again, they were the FBI, the MPD, they were all going at them. Just let's go over who's been actually charged. It's obviously not the real leaders of the conspiracy, but a lot of the people who are being charged, even though a, the you know there's a big th- deal being made about it in the media, the charges are actually quite light. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, we should remember that uh, when Congress reconvened on January 6th, on the evening of January 6th, after they regained control of the Capitol building, Chuck Schumer gave a speech where he compared what happened to the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Uh, I mean, this is what the what the Democrats actually think about what happened, you know, because that's what they said in the moment before they had the time to make these political calculations and back down and mishandle it. Uh, and, and you know, I mean, maybe Pearl Harbor is a, a bit of a stretch, but I mean, this was a huge deal. I mean, I think that's not that far off. It, they, the mob dispersed Congress. Um, but, but now, uh, fast forward about a month, uh, we have 26 people who were arrested and charged with uh, conspiracy crimes or or assault on a police officer. So 26, know, 26. Right. And there were thousands and thousands of people who were in that mob, including, you know, many, many hundreds who are part of the the vanguard that that sort of really smashed their way in um, or were, were allowed in in some cases by the police. But yeah, I mean, unbelievable. Only 26, 43 were charged with. Uh, interference with law enforcement, property crimes, but not conspiracy or assault. And then there are about 107 people um, who have been charged with uh, very minor crimes, like trespassing, disrupting Congress. Uh, Now, there could be charges added later to these, but right now the message that this sends to the fascists, to the far right, to the people who like what happened on January 6th and want to do it again, is that you can you can basically get away with it. The consequences probably aren't going to be that bad for you. I want to just mention to people who won't know it about what I was saying about the Project Veritas, that's the formerly Breitbart, now James O'Keefe, these right-wing you know, Trump supporters along with the Oath Keepers, their role in working with the MPD and with federal law enforcement to charge 200 people with conspiracy, facing felony charges because they happen to be marching, not marching towards the Capitol, not killing people, not violently breaking up, but they were in proximity to a few individuals who broke some windows. 
or one car, one unoccupied car was set on fire. But people who were even in the area kettled. They were all arrested, including people who were journalists. Here's a lawsuit that was filed by the D.C.-based Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. On November 29, 2017, Plaintiff Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, PCJF, filed a request under the Freedom of Information Act seeking public disclosure of information related to the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department and its personnel's relationship and communications with Project Veritas, Oath Keepers, and any other private organizations or entities that has provided or offered to provide information or, quote, intelligence, close quote, on political protests or political organizing effort. This request was filed directly after public disclosure that the MPD, that's the D.C. Police Department, worked with and received information from politically motivated right-wing organizations, including Project Veritas and Oath Keepers, to be used against the political opponents of those organizations. This included using covertly recorded and misleadingly edited materials obtained from Project Veritas during the MPD's collaboration with the U.S. Attorney's Office to prosecute hundreds of innocent people subject to a mass dragnet arrest at the inauguration of Donald Trump on January 20th, 2017. Those prosecutions ended in failure and were racked with issues of prosecutorial and police misconduct, including the withholding and tampering of evidence, but not before hundreds of people had their lives upended to defend against these charges. And now here's the thing. This lawsuit demanding information about how the D.C. police were working with Project Veritas and the Oath Keepers, the lawsuit is also against the District of Columbia writ large, including the mayor, Muriel Bowser, and Carl Racine, the attorney general here, who even today, even as of today, four years later, has refused to respond to the requests. At first, you know, denying that the material existed and then, you know, still refusing to release these documents because they're embarrassing. The MPD was working with right-wingers to prosecute people who were involved in the anti-Trump demonstration on January 20th, 2017. The double standards here, Nicole, I mean, we could go on and on and on about how the police, you know, we did these shows in the past, the cops and the Klan work hand in hand. Even when there are contradictions, even when the MPD at, at the West Terrace entrance was actually fighting and fighting hard against some of the fascist, you know, fighters on January 6th, even while that may be true at that moment, there's also been this long-standing collaboration between the, the mil- between the police and right-wing organizations, police undercover agents who worked, who did the same thing as the right-wingers in terms of infiltrating left-wing and progressive protesters. And, and now we have the new Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, who is arguing that trying to purge the military of fascist forces or what they call extremist forces, but that's who they are, is what he calls a major challenge. Uh, Again, it's not just about Trump and it's not, not just about the Proud Boys. And we can't think of these police agencies or federal uh, law enforcement as some sort of savior. They too are part of the problem. They are. And I think, 
you know, a lot of people on the left are very, very familiar at this point with, you know, the the fact that there are very clearly different justice systems for the wealthy and the poor, different justice systems for white and for black. But I think it's really, really important to extend that understanding that they're, you know, that the justice system is essentially stacked against the people, against progressive people, against people's movements for change, for positive change, for socialist change, for progressive change. And this is an extension of that. So when we see the surveillance state getting bigger, when we see courts defending the surveillance state, um, when we see the um, courts, you know, defending essentially these fascists, when we see police defending these fascists, we should not only not be surprised, but it's incredibly important to to understand what's happening there and to push back against what's happening there. A little bit more context here for the political moment since we, we started with impeachment. This is the second impeachment of Donald Trump. And again, we've been arguing that it won't do anything to move Trump's political base. In fact, it will harden it. It will strengthen it. And Trump will actually face no consequences, no real consequences. But I also want to take us back to where uh, how the Democrats are presenting the political moment. They're saying, and Biden is saying, we have to unify the country. We have to get over this sharp political divide and sort of putting the onus on the Republicans alone and uh, Trump alone and, and, and sort of bemoaning the fact that so many people in America now, as a consequence of Donald Trump saying the election was illegitimate, they have lost their faith in American democracy and that this is a grave undermining of the you know, current political economic system, the social system. And in one way, that's absolutely true. It has been undermined. But let's not forget the role of the Democrats in the political context. The Democrats spent the first two and a half years after Trump was elected trying to overturn the 2016 election. And they argued, too, that 2016, which Trump won narrowly and Hillary Clinton lost narrowly, at least in the Electoral College, the Democrats made the argument to the country, and their base clearly believed it, that 2016 was an illegitimate election, and it was due to Russian interference. They were hoping that entire time that Robert Mueller's investigation would lead to Donald Trump's ouster, again, so that they would overturn the election outcome of 2016. And this ouster was based on a fraudulent conspiracy theory that Donald Trump was colluding with the Russians. Democrats, in large part, believed this hype almost entirely. They couldn't accept that Donald Trump won the Electoral College narrowly because they had a bad candidate who did not or maybe could not connect with or offer unhappy voters a reason to vote for her. Six million fewer Democrats voted for Clinton than for Obama. Quite a number of people who voted for Obama in the battleground states in the Midwest finally voted for Trump in 2016. But a big part of the Democrats' base, at least, really fell for the line offered by the Democratic establishment that it was not the Democrats and not Hillary's fault but rather it was a flawed election because of Russian interference. The same thing has happened in reverse with Trump. He lost the 2020 election, again, narrowly by the Electoral College. He said, it's not my mishandling of the COVID crisis, but rather voter fraud. The election was stolen. It was illegitimate. 
It was voter fraud in general. Voting machines were tampered with, especially voter fraud in predominantly black voting areas. So you had the Democrats for the first three years after the 2016 election saying it's an illegitimate election because we lost and don't believe in the election. It's really a consequence of fraud and Russian interference. And then Trump mirroring the same sort of assertion of illegitimacy. So don't be surprised, Democrats, that large numbers of Americans uh, no longer believe in the legitimacy of the system. I wanted to add, Brian, that because of the Democratic hoax around Russiagate, you know, I've mentioned this before, I think it's one of the main reasons why people find it so hypocritical uh, for them to tag, you know, even far loony QAnon as a conspiracy theory, because for the past four years, Democrats have embraced and refused to let go of the huge conspiracy theory, which was Russiagate. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've come to the conclusion that the fact that they did hold on to it for so long really bolstered Fox News, really bolstered the rise of these far right news channels like Newsmax and, and, you know, OAN, uh, because people would say, well, what they're saying over there is obviously false. I'm talking about MSNBC, CNN. And so they have kind of given rise to this whole new, like right wing media monster. And it further legitimized people to kind of go into the arms of the QAnon conspiracy because they could see on the other side was another conspiracy. Esther's point is exactly right. And one other thing I want to add here is, you know, we're talking about this kind of selective um, punishments, essentially, these, this court system that doesn't actually serve people. It serves to uphold the elite force. And the elite force was very much against Trump, like we were just talking about. And of course, we are all very much against Trump, I think, for different reasons. But the attorney in the Justice Department, Kevin Kleinsmith, just less than two weeks ago, this is the man that falsified, completely falsified evidence to be able to surveil a low-level aide in tr the Trump administration, Carter Page. He, the man who completely falsified evidence, this could happen to any of us. If if this justice, this lawyer with the Justice Department can just falsify this kind of evidence and get away with it, that could happen. That means they, you know, the Justice Department could surveil any of us with this kind of light punishment. This lawyer just got, Kevin Kleinsmith just got, just got probation. He got probation. And the, the reason he got probation, the judge said, James E. Bosberg of the Federal District Court for the District of Columbia said, Quote, anybody who has watched what Mr. Kleinsmith has suffered is not someone who will readily act in that fashion. Weighing all those factors together, both in terms of the damages he caused and what he has suffered and the positives in his own life, I believe a probationary sentence is appropriate. So again, the man who, who you know, illegally tampered with evidence to enable the FBI to surveil someone's personal life got probation. Yeah. And the reason the reason the FBI was against Trump is that Trump, as we've said over and over again, quoting Karl Marx and Frederick Engels in the Communist Manifesto, who said that the the role of the of the chief executive or the executive in the modern state is to manage the common affairs of the bourgeoisie. And Donald Trump uh, from the beginning has looked like a con man only interested in Trump and Trump, the Trump organization that he wasn't playing by consensus politics within the ruling class. Clearly, uh, the fundamental element of consensus politics is to allow the peaceful transfer of power. 
Trump doesn't care about all of these norms of of capitalist rule because he's just in it for himself. So the FBI wanted an insurance policy against the odd outcome that they didn't predict, which was that Trump might win. But in case he did, they wanted to be able to, you know, to go after him. By the way, guys, on a lighter note, and since we're talking about the spread of conspiracy theories as a consequence of the fact that the leadership of the Democrats promoted a conspiracy theory for several years, and Donald Trump has has promoted several conspiracy theories, all for his own advantage. For some QAnon conspiracy theorists, March 4th, 2021 is the date that they believe that Donald Trump will be sworn in as the as the president of the United States. That's, you know, March 4th is when presidents used to be inaugurated before it was moved up to January 20th. And this is, I'm looking at Forbes magazine, by the way. And one of the reasons that we know that QAnon might be coming back to Washington on March 4th, in accordance with the, the new promoted theory, is that the Trump International Hotel room rates are being raised for March 3rd, 4th, and 5th, just as there was a huge spike in room rate rentals for the Trump International Hotel right before January 6th. So people can check out that article if you want in Forbes magazine. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. This is this is happening. Trump International Hotel is raising their rates by a lot. I mean, it's in like in the thousands of dollars now for the available rooms for March 3rd and 4th because QAnon supporters around the country now believe that Trump will be, in fact, sworn in as the next president on March 4th. I mean, it really goes to show how durable Trump's base of support is. I mean, one one would think that these types of people would be very demoralized after Trump essentially uh, called, well, I mean, not essentially, did go on TV and call for their arrest, right? I mean, he incited them, he got them to march over to the Capitol, carry out this attack, but but he got cold feet at the end, right? And and he denounced the people who he sent on this on this wild mission. Um, but but I mean it's really shocking. Like these people don't seem to be that discouraged by it. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's a classic thing with like mi- like millenarian cults, right? Like where there's uh, a religious cult that thinks the world is gonna end on a certain date and they get ready for it. You know, they sell all their possessions, and then when the rapture doesn't come, uh, they they do a recalculation. They're just like, oh, we got we got the date wrong. Uh, in this case, you know, for QAnon, it's the storm is what they refer to, uh, refer to it as. Um, and they're just like, oh, okay, so it's not January sixth; it's March fourth. And when it doesn't happen on March fourth, I'm sure they'll come up with something else. I mean, it's truly a remarkable phenomenon in politics. Let's go on to some other stories. Impeachment, unfortunately, is going to be with us for a little bit. We'll come back to that. But Nicole, COVID, the new variant of the virus spreading, spreading rapidly. So we have health policy issues. We also have this amazing spike in homelessness, in poverty. Let's go over some of the statistics. I mean, they're really, they say so much about what's actually happening, not in the halls of Congress, not with the theater taking place in the Senate but for actual people and what's happening in their lives? Well, we can start with the fact that the United States now is at 27 million cases. I mean, just a a remarkably 
huge, huge number. That's out of 106 million cases globally. So again, we remain at about a quarter of the cases globally, despite that we're not even the biggest you know, country by population. We also have 465,000 deaths here in this country. We are um, at least a quarter of the deaths in the world, despite, again, being the wealthiest nation in the entire world. And yeah, the the COVID, several COVID variants are spreading. There's one that's spreading really rapidly in the United States. It was first identified in the United Kingdom. It's the B117 variant. And by March, it is now reported to be probably the most common variant in the country. The scary part about this variant um, is that it seems to be about 40 to 70% more transmissible than previous forms of the coronavirus that we've been dealing with. And it's gaining a really strong foothold across the world, according to a new study. The variant is doubling every 10 days and spreading very, very rapidly in the United States. Meanwhile, as you mentioned, homelessness, poverty, these things are all spiking. I'm going to read from a New York Times article. Even before last year, about 11 million households, one in four U.S. renters, were spending more than half their pre-tax income on housing, and overcrowding was also on the rise. By one estimate, for every 100 very low-income households, only 36 affordable rentals are available. But now, the pandemic is adding to the pressure. A recent study showed that tenants who lost jobs in the pandemic had amassed $11 billion in rental arrears, while a broader measure by Moody's Analytics, which includes all delinquent renters, estimated that as of January, they owed $53 billion in back rent, utilities, and late fees. $53 billion. Other surveys show that families are increasingly pessimistic about making just next month's rent and are cutting back on food and other essentials to pay the bills for their rent. Recently, the Biden administration pushed through $25 billion in federal rental aid. It hasn't been distributed yet, but I think it's important to put that into perspective because what happened last year when there were rental assistance funds, um, cities and states actually really struggled to use that money because the criteria are so restrictive. One economics professor at Barnard College, Elizabeth Ananat, said, quote, our systems are built around these middle-class models where everybody has documentation for everything. Much of the world doesn't work that way, but most of the people who write the laws live in the world that does work that way. So, you know, there's billions and billions of dollars in quote-unquote back rent, and then the, you know, the, the assistance that's supposed to be coming is coming in a way that's not going to be useful when what's, you know, something that could clearly actually work here is just canceling the rent, canceling the rent, making the banks pay. The banks have the money to do this. The banks are getting huge, huge assistance from the Fed. So that's one component of what's happening right now. Another component is that a lot of the electricity, power, water shutoff moratoriums are running out in certain states, or at a minimum, those, those back payments are absolutely mounting. So as of the end of 2020, Americans owed their gas, and this I'm reading from the Washington Post now, Americans owed their gas and electric utilities an estimated $32 billion. So we're looking at $53 billion in back rent and $32 billion in gas and electricity utilities. These are basic things that people need to survive. Reading again from the Washington Post, utilities in the Washington region and across the country say they need a way to convince financially strapped customers to sign up for flexible payment plans and government aid that is going unused. They say moratoriums that were intended as a temporary safety net inadvertently allowed thousands to accrue deep debt that will be difficult, if not possible, to pay off. 
Oh, so, wait a second. Wait a second. That's kind of funny. So the moratorium, the moratorium on payments to utility companies or to landlords, when people had lost their jobs and had no income, mm-hmm. that moratorium, that was a real problem because it inadvertently allowed thousands of people to accrue deep debt that will be difficult to pay off. No. The reason they people should just can't, cancel it. The people can't pay their their debt because they don't have any money. I mean, this is just this kind of uh, this double speak of the media and of government think tanks. And of course, the apologists, like, why shouldn't the utility companies be immediately seized? I mean, what what do they actually provide? They're just money making investment vehicles for corporate investors and banking investors and for the rich. I mean, this should be treated as a genuine right. Heat and light, especially in a pandemic, but at any time should be a right. And of Absolutely. course, that would be and- a socialist a solution to this problem. <laughs> Well, and Brian, you you were identifying that the exact things that that drove me wild about this article because you know it goes on to have um, the heads of utility companies say, "Well, we want to make sure. I mean, we have to have our companies stay solvent. We want to make sure these utilities stay solvent. Well, why don't we just nationalize them? That's the absolutely easiest way to go. And the other component here is that in Maryland, and I'm sure in other states, regional utilities are cutting off hundreds of homes from electricity. And the only way you can get it back is to either pay back your back um, your back bills, which as we've noted, have accrued to a lot because people have lost their jobs. Or you can sign up for this payment plan they're talking about. So <laughs> you can sign up for a payment plan, again, without a job. And then once they get you on the hook there, then they'll turn your basic electricity back on so that you can I don't know, have a hot shower or cook food. It's just, it's completely disgusting. And moreover, there was a recent analysis by Duke that found that banning disconnections nationwide, banning, you know, making this moratorium nationwide from March through November in 2020 would have reduced the coronavirus infections that we saw nationwide by 8.7%. And it would have reduced the deaths that we saw from the coronavirus by 14.8%. I mean, it's 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 basics. If you can have your power and your water on, you can wash your hands. You can stay in your home and socially distance. I mean, these are huge, huge numbers. So the last thing I, I want to highlight here is in stark contrast, because while we're talking about, again, $53 billion in back rent, $32 billion in uh, back payments for gas and electric utilities, basic things that people need, billionaires' wealth, well, that surged to a record $10.2 trillion during the pandemic. trillion. The super rich have been the the big beneficiaries of the stock market rally from the March lows, according to a Forbes article. Their total net worth rose by 27.5% between April and July to smash the previous record set at the end of 2017. The number of billionaires has also grown. So they've grown in, in breadth and depth. And again, you know, this this is the findings of the 2020 Billionaire Insights Report. And I just want to highlight another ridiculous quote from Joseph Stadler, the head of the UBS Global Wealth Management's Family Office Division. Quote, billionaires did extremely well during and after the crisis. And yes, that is true. But for many, for most of us, for everyone, the crisis isn't over. It's only for the billionaires who are wealthy during this period where you can say during and after the crisis. The crisis, I just read out All of these statistics about people who are homeless, who are poor, who are having their heat shut off, having their lights shut off, having their water shut off. The crisis started a year ago. Well, the crisis started way before that, but is just getting deeper and deeper and more and more desperate. 
Indeed. And not to end on a sad note, because this is something that the government could fix, and we have to push the government to fix it. Or get rid of the government and get a new government and a new system. You're right. The government could fix this. This is not that complicated. It would just mean shifting the burden of an economic crisis onto those who have a lot so that those who have either very little or nothing can survive. Governments in Europe are doing that. They're capitalist governments. They're, I mean, it's, it's, it varies from country to country. But this is the American version of capitalism in particular, where the greed and avarice and hubris of the ruling class is so great because they, they're not really at this moment afraid of revolution. They, they, they're not that afraid of the working class. They're not that afraid of the unions. They're not that, you know, they're not being compelled by general strikes and mass actions that, you know, directly go at them. And as a consequence, they think they can inflict all kinds of, of human misery on the masses of people. And, and, you know, our program, Esther, is called the Socialist Program. We're operating from within a socialist perspective. We're trying to look at the news with an objective faculty, but certainly we are partisans of, of social change. We are advocates of the poor and the working class, those who, you know, actually through their own labor, create all the wealth that then is aggregated and 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 taken hold of by an owning class. We're we're partisan. And so we look at the problems like these problems, this great inequality, uh, this growing as as Marx put it, capitalism is the accumulation of wealth at one pole and therefore, at the same time, the accumulation of misery, agony, of toil, slavery, ignorance, brutality, mental degradation, etc., at the other pole. These are like dominant and, and consistent features of capitalism. There's a new feature of capitalism, too, which by putting profits before the needs of people, putting profits before the needs of anything else, uh, we are not only having social and economic catastrophe for the working class and poor in the United States and in other countries, and of course, for the developing world, even on a, on a grander scale. But there's the other problem of un, you know, this nonstop grab everything you can for profit. It's also creating, as we know, climate catastrophe. And, and so there's these multiple cascading crises of capitalism that we believe must be exposed and also to bring out that there is an alternative, that society can be organized in a different kind of way where people come first and where the climate or at least our environment or the planet Earth becomes sustainable. But anyway, let's talk about the latest news on the, on the global warming front. Right, Brian. Well, the world is witnessing actually right now, very dramatic and deadly natural disasters that are stark reminders of the realities of climate change and how low-income, indigenous communities and workers are bearing the brunt of capitalism's assault on nature. So as we speak, rescuers are still searching for up to 200 people missing and feared killed on Sunday after a glacier broke in the Himalayas in northern India. The avalanche crashed into area rivers with ice and mud that completely demolished two major dam projects under construction, uh, killing project workers. And then this fast flow of boulders and ice 
sped down the mountain, wiping out rural mountain villages. And this is in the northern state of Uttarakhand. And uh, one scientist said that the water was flowing at cyclonic speed. Uh, there is a, there were people on an nearby mountain area uh, up upward from where this happened. And uh, they captured on video moments right after the, the avalanche. I think we may have a, a piece of sound from that. So, as I said, you know, some of the dead missing are workers who were constructing the dam projects. And scientists warned the government of Narendra Modi that these types of dams should not be constructed so close to the glaciers or directly on tributaries to the Ganges River. But like his fellow far-right leaders from around the world, Bolsonaro in Brazil, who's you know aiding the destruction of the Amazon, you know, Modi is obviously not paying attention to climate change or believing the science. Um, the, and the fact that the glacier broke in the middle of winter is a serious sign that climate change is accelerating warming in this area and that Sunday's disaster is just an example of more melting and flooding to come. And actually a major report released by a group of scientists in 2019 predicted ominously that rising temperatures could melt most of the Himalayan glaciers by 2100. Uh, eliminating by the next century, eliminating the fresh water supply for this region. And meanwhile, what was the world's largest iceberg continues to break apart into smaller pieces as it drifts northward from Antarctica. And the iceberg called A68A is about the size of Delaware or about the size of the island of Jamaica. And it became the world's largest iceberg when it split from Antarctica's Larsen Sea ice shelf in July of 2017. And one final note on Sunday's avalanche in India, uh, that disaster is not the first warning of the dangers of this type of flooding. In 2013, when heavy rain over several days led to landslides that killed thousands of people and washed away entire villages as well. So as I said, our communities and really the whole of the natural world are on the dangerous front lines as these global capitalists and the governments that do their bidding fail to take the drastic steps necessary to transition from fossil fuels that are warming the planet. Wow. So, all right. We have to get to some good news here at some point. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, Walter, some good news came. Oh, I have some good news. I have. Okay. Good news for the climate. Okay. The, the the iceberg, uh, it veered away from an island of penguins. Okay. Oh, so, the, the iceberg that's breaking up. Yes, yes. It's it not going to destroy the penguins. Right, right. So there's some good news. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, we do care about the penguins and all living things, uh, but it's pretty yeah. dire that big parts of the world are melting and the impact is so great. That's why the urgent need for the elimination of the capitalist mode of production that puts profit first, as long as profit is a determinant for investment, 
then the idea of sustainability is sort of out the window. The only way sustainability happens is if you have a planned economy that's not predicated on profit, but rather on meeting human beings' needs and the needs of the environment. That can only happen by public property, a planned economy, and an economy that thoughtfully, carefully, and democratically uh, considers all of the different spending, financing, and building options to keep in mind both meeting people's needs and sustainability. There's another piece of good news, though, in addition to the potential survival of the penguins on that particular island. And that's what's going on in Latin America, Walter. The election in Ecuador, again, it doesn't, it's not a finished outcome, but it's very, very impressive. Let's talk about what's going on there. Yeah, very promising sign for the left in Ecuador. The first round of the presidential election was held on Sunday. The main leftist candidate, Andres Arauz, uh, who's a, a young economist, um, he's uh, the representative of a political movement in Ecuador called the Citizens Revolution. There's you know many different organizations and political parties involved in that, but uh, that refers to this process of of really significant, profound social change that began in the country in 2006 when President Rafael Correa was elected, and he made an alliance with uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Evo Morales in Bolivia, um, you know Cuba and the Cuban Revolution. You know this this Ecuador traditionally was a pillar of the left wing in Latin America. But the current president, Lenin Moreno, even though he came from the same political tradition, betrayed the movement. Uh, and Ecuador became a bastion of the right wing for the past several years. So this is uh, you know, potentially the beginning of a, of a really amazing comeback story for, for the left. Uh, so he uh, aroused the left wing candidate. He got 32% of the vote. Um, who he will face in the second round is under dispute. It looks like it's going to be uh, somebody named Yaku Perez, who uh, is the leader of an organization that you know brands itself as like like left wing and environmentalist, but but in fact has made uh, you know very serious uh, long term alliances with the political right wing in Ecuador that represents the country's traditional elites. Um, the other candidate, uh, Guillermo Lasso, um, a candidate of the, you know, just the the straight, unadulterated right wing, uh, former, you know, well, he is a banker, ultra wealthy, rich banker. Uh, he came really, really close. Both Yaku Perez and Guillermo Lasso got about 20% of the vote. Uh, so, so Lasso, who's in third place technically, but just by a hair is contesting that. Either way, uh, you know, it'll be It'll be really a remarkable thing that builds on the momentum that left-wing political parties and movements in Latin America have been experiencing in recent years. Um, you know, think about the the return to power of the movement for socialism in Bolivia uh, just a few months ago after the coup in 2019, uh, or you know, the success of the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. You know, if if the left wins in the second round, then it'll add to that momentum. Uh, which is a huge challenge to U.S. domination of the region, in addition to the social injustices that that exist within those societies. Let's we we have two more stories I want to be able to get to, and I know time is going short. But Nicole, I think we have an audio clip from the Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Zarif on one of the CNN shows, because Biden's new team, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, has 
announced that the U.S. won't be lifting sanctions on Iran unless Iran returns to the earlier agreements of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear arms deal that Trump ripped up and then intimidated other signers to withdraw from as well. Again, during the campaign, Biden said, yeah, we want to go back to the Iran nuclear arms deal. I'm not sure that's about to happen, but let's listen to the foreign minister from Iran. It is very clear. It was the United States that left the deed. It was the United States that violated the deed. It was the United States that punished any country that remained respectful and compliant with the deal. So it is for the United States to return to the deal, to implement its obligations. Iran never left the deal. So this is important because obviously Iran is now enriching uranium to a a higher level than was the case when the U.S. was still in the JCPOA. Once Trump left the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear arms deal, the weapons inspectors stayed, the International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors, they stayed in Iran, very intrusive inspections. And, and But Iran, in retaliation or in response, would be a better way of putting it, to Trump ripping up the agreement, imposing new sanctions on Iran, and then demanding that the other signatories, which included Britain, France, and Germany, that they go along and they also sanction Iran, that they also not buy oil from Iran, that they agree to strangle Iran. When those governments in Europe, the American allies, so to speak, refused to stand up to Trump, even though they were for maintaining the pact, the Iranians said, okay, well, guess what? We're no longer bound by the earlier lower limits of enriched uranium. We're going to start enriching more uranium. Now, the, now Biden is saying basically Iran is in non-compliance, and there's the Iranian foreign minister saying, no, it's the Americans who are out of compliance. Now, that's obviously true. Trump was the one who ripped up the agreement. But I want to go to a technical element of this, because it turns out that in the language of the agreement, the JCPOA, the Iranians are allowed to change the terms or the limits of their uranium production if the agreement is not complied with. I wonder, I, I saw an article by Scott Ritter. He's a former U.S. weapons inspector in Iraq. He's now a writer. He writes this in an article that came out February 3rd. In a recent statement, Blinken, he's the Secretary of State, warned that if Iran continued to unilaterally lift the various restrictions on its nuclear program mandated under the JCPOA, it would be able to produce enough visible material for a nuclear weapon within, quote, a matter of weeks, close quote. But this assertion is fundamentally flawed. In keeping with its policy of ending JCPOA restrictions as a remedial action permitted under Article 36 of the agreement, should other parties be in fundamental noncompliance, which the U.S. is by issuing the sanctions, Iran has begun the process to enrich uranium to 20% and convert that uranium to metal. This would be used to produce fuel plates needed to power a research reactor in Tehran used to produce medical isotopes. So this article goes on and says what, what the Iranians basically did is they took the agreement in Article 36 that said if other parties are in noncompliance, 
we can enrich an additional amount of uranium up to 20%. And this also means, and what the Iranians are basically saying is, if the Americans come back into compliance, we will then also go back to the agreement as stipulated. But they're making the point, and it's a very measured response on the part of Iran, they haven't really left the JCPOA. They're citing the language from Article 36 about how to deal with other parties being in noncompliance. Anyway, we will continue to look at that story because the danger of U.S. aggression against Iran is ever-present. The U.S. killed uh, General Qasem Soleimani a year ago. The assassination of Iranian nuclear scientists taking place with you know a certain kind of regularity, and of course economic sanctions in, indeed are an act of war against people. Depriving people of food and medicine is an act of war, and that's in, in fact what sanctions are. Let's go to our our final story, Walter. The people in Haiti are rising up once again. The Haitian Revolution and the emergence of an independent free Haiti, the first successful slave revolution in world history, where the enslaved people overthrew their masters, broke their colonial bonds, became independent and free, inspired enslaved people all over the Western Hemisphere. That happened in the 1790s and culminated in the 1804 revolution. Since then, America has had Haiti in the crosshairs. Haiti has never been forgiven. And there's multiple ways in which the U.S. imperialist establishment intervenes in Haiti. But right now, the people in Haiti who have this long, proud history of resistance and rebellion and revolution, uh, they are in the streets. That's right. And to get a little bit more information about this very, very important struggle, this revolt uprising that's going on in Haiti, we spoke with Rachel Doman. She is an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation in Boston, and she writes for Liberation News about the situation in Haiti. Let's take a listen to that. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Walter. So we saw a general strike last week, huge day of protests on Sunday. Uh, what's what's going on? Why is there uh, an uprising in Haiti? Yeah, I mean, I think the pattern of, you know, widespread unrest is not, you know, siloed to just these past few weeks in Haiti, but it's definitely been something that has happened throughout the dur- duration of Haitian history, for sure. Uh, But most recently, uh, the people of Haiti have been protesting the corruption. So Jovenel Moise's uh, presidential term was set to end on February 7th, as is dictated in the Haitian constitution. And, you know, he was just adamantly refusing to step down from this presidential position. And the people of Haiti have continuously just, you know, been increasing the fervor with which they've been uprising against, uh, you know, this corruption. I mean, throughout the duration of his um, presidency, I mean, we've seen, you know, unjust increases in gas prices. We've seen financial embezzlement uh, that is really supposed to be going to the national infrastructure and social programming for Haitian people. But instead, we've just seen uh, continued police repression, you know, horrible living conditions, a completely inadequate response to the COVID crisis in the country. Um, and I mean, very obviously, the people of Haiti are fed up and have been fed up. But this is really 
the straw that broke the camel's back in this certain circumstance. And and let's dig into this corruption scandal a little bit more that that precipitated this and and other rounds of protests that have been taking place in the last few years. Um, Yeah, explain that point a little bit more, if you would. Yeah, definitely. I mean, really, since 2018, we've seen this widespread unrest within Haiti, because uh, back in July of 2018, Jovenel Moisi, um, you know, attempted to raise the price of gas. And, you know, this was on top of the horrendous conditions that we've seen in Haiti, the complete exploitation of, you know, the working and poor people of the nation, um, who really are, I mean, over about 60% of Haitians already lived in poverty. So an increase to gas prices is just drastic for many people to be able to survive. And so, you know, that year for, I, I believe, like eight or nine months straight, we just saw intense movements, mobilization from the people day in and day out, uh, just demanding an end to this corruption that is known to be in Moise's administration and the complete repression of people uh, by the Haitian National Police, uh, who really operate on similar tactics as the Tantamakutes, which are a terroristic um, police force that reigned over the nation during the infamously repressive Duvalier uh, dictatorship uh, from 1957 to 1986. And I think even before 2018 was when the Petro-Caribe scandal was sort of exposed to the people. Um, And Petro-Caribe, for those who may not be familiar, is a solidarity-based alliance centered around Venezuela, you know, extending solidarity to Haiti and other Caribbean and Latin American nations. And, you know, the, the extra wealth from that fund was meant to be allocated for social programming and, you know, the building of infrastructure in Haiti. I mean, we saw in, in after the aftermath of the earthquake, just how much that was necessary. And in fact, you know, the, the U.S.-backed you know, corrupt presidents who have since sat in power were realistically just embezzling that money for themselves rather than using it for the needs of the people. Rachel, you've got a new article out in Liberation News. Uh, everybody should go check this out, liberationnews.org. The, the headline is Fierce Struggle Resists U.S.-Backed Haitian President's Power Grab. Explain, if you would, the role that the United States has played in empowering this kind of corrupt elite oligarchy. I mean, the the people of Haiti are known for their long revolutionary tradition. Uh, and and this, this tiny elite that's been carrying out all of these horrible acts of, of repression, of corruption, uh, they didn't get into power on their own, did they? Of course they did not. Of course, these repressive, uh, you know, dictators and, and governments of Haiti have been in cahoots in one way or another with the U.S. government. I mean, since the Haitian Revolution, the success of the Haitian Revolution in 1804, you know, the imperialist powers, most notably the United States have, you know, fiercely attempted to curb the threat of, you know, a sovereign force of, you know, Black self-determination in Haiti, specifically in freedom from being able to really rise and thrive and the Moise administration is, of course, not exempt from this same power. I mean, 
we've already seen two coups of the democratically, the first democratically elected president in Haitian history, Aristide, you know, who was overthrown by the U.S. And yeah, following that, I mean, the U.S., of course, had to curb the continued resistance of the Haitian people and continue to just plant in cycle after cycle people who can act as puppets for the U.S. government while reigning over Haiti. And with Moise specifically, I mean, we've seen for years and years just how much unrest there is and instability there is under his regime in the country of Haiti. And the U.S. continues to back him despite, you know, the increasingly authoritarian power grabs that he continues to make, despite the extreme police repression that, you know, he's just letting in light of the protests on the 7th and and up to now, he's, you know, specifically instructing police to shoot at protesters and journalists. And I mean, this is the same type of behavior that we see from the United States here domestically as well. So, I mean, yeah, I think the U.S. and, of course, the Biden administration continue to show their cards in, you know, continuing to back not the the democratically elected leaders that the Haitian people decide for their country, but instead by backing these repressive puppets who continue to operate with the interests of the U.S. in mind. Very important points. Rachel, thank you so much for joining the program. Yes, thank you for having me. Walter, thank you for interviewing Rachel. I I hope everyone can continue to follow the struggle of the people in Haiti. We'll, We'll continue to follow the struggle throughout the Caribbean and Latin America and Africa and the Middle East and Asia and Europe and right here in the United States. And before we sign off, Brian, Nicole, and Walter, we want to take this time to celebrate the life of former Chicago Teachers Union President Karen Lewis, who recently lost her seven-year battle with brain cancer. The union said in its statement Monday that Lewis, quote, bowed to no one and gave strength to tens of thousands of Chicago Teachers Union educators who followed her lead and who live by her principles to this day, end quote. Under Lewis's leadership, Chicago teachers in 2012 staged their first strike in 25 years and created a movement that built alliances between teachers, parents, and community organizations to defend public schools and public school students from the ravages of privatization and corporate reform promoted by both the Democratic and Republican parties. This is the socialist program. I want to let our audience know that, of course, tomorrow we have our segment with Richard Wolf, uh, Professor Richard Wolf. This is our weekly segment on the economy. We'll talk with Professor Wolf with a particular focus on the real versus the phony debate on the issue of minimum wage. And then on Thursday, we are interviewing and talking with Brian S. Wilson a noted anti-war leader, Vietnam veteran, attorney, author. In 1987, Brian Wilson, along with other peace activists, sat on a railroad track at the Naval Concord Station to protest sending weapons to the death squad Contras who were fighting against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. They expected that there would be a symbolic stopping of the train with its weapons delivery. Instead, that train was ordered to speed up 
It went three times faster than the speed limit for trains at the Naval Station. It ran over Brian Wilson. Both of his legs were severed. He had a fractured skull. Uh, Shockingly, he survived and continued to fight and fight for social change and to fight against war and militarism. We have this great interview with Brian Wilson that we'll have this coming Thursday. So we have a packed week, Nicole, a lot more to cover. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.